looking in sewage for variants of SARS-CoV-2. Is there an increased risk of stroke or a heart attack after you've had a COVID vaccine? Can plasma antigens tell us how bad somebody's COVID infection might be? And can we use proteins in the blood to assess whether someone's going to recover after a traumatic brain injury? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm also the dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Okay, Rick, we've got three out of four back to our COVID stuff this week. And let's turn first to nature. This was just an unbelievably information and science dense paper that was taking a look at detecting emerging variants early by looking at wastewater, specifically looking at RNA concentration in wastewater and a number of really impressive innovations relative to how to do that so that this could actually become a whole lot more practical than it is right now. And just as a little bit of background, we're both aware that there's all kinds of wastewater testing that's already going on all over the world, in fact, to try to discern when SARS-CoV-2 is present, which variant is there, how many people might have it, and all of that. In this case, they were looking in San Diego they developed the technique using nanomagnetic beads with a high affinity for viral particles of all types. And these are added to raw sewage samples. They capture the virus on a whole, all the viruses, not just SARS-CoV-2. And then a robot with a magnetic head extracts the virus-bound beads in less than an hour. They also developed a computational model that they call Freja. And Freja is able to better identify multiple variants in a virally diverse wastewater sample and then estimate how these are related to other SARS-CoV-2 viruses that are hanging out or sublineages. Very elegantly, they can do this not just with full-length RNAs and viral particles, but even little bits and with lots of confounders that, of course, are present in wastewater. And what they were able to show was that they could find things way earlier. They say that they could detect emerging variants of concern up to 14 days earlier in these wastewater samples, and that they can also identify cryptic transmission, so transmission that's not necessarily discernible clinically. They admit that one of the limitations of their study is that getting everybody all over the world up to speed on this is going to be a pretty big uphill battle. Let's contrast that with how typically we detect it. Someone comes in, presents with symptoms, a nasal swab is done, it's submitted to a lab, and they look for specific variants. That already has a bias. There are a lot of people that won't get tested, they don't want to know, or they don't have access. This goes against all those biases. It tests wastewater, and by the way, we all contribute to wastewater. The thing that was really most remarkable to me was how they did this very fine analysis looking at the whole genome, look at all of the viruses and the different variants, and they're able to detect very small viral quantities. I have to admit, when they talked about doing this several months ago, I thought there's no way they're going to be able to pull this off because there's so much stuff in wastewater, there's very low concentration of virus, but they've done both a special sequencing, special analysis. It's real. And as you said, Elizabeth, they could detect special variants 14 days earlier than they could just by waiting for people to present with symptoms and testing a nasal swab. Clearly something that the CDC has advocated. I'm just wondering though, what the clinical utility of knowing two weeks previous to a variant presenting clinically might be. 
You can geographically locate things to various parts of the city. You can identify variants that may or may not be responsive to previous vaccines and or particular therapies. So you can make sure that either the vaccines that you would need or the therapies you would need are in the appropriate locations. This would be easier in some aspects than just doing nasal swab testing on thousands of different individuals. Also for other things, for example, can we detect monkeypox or can we detect measles? More to come. Let us turn to yours. You pose this question. Go ahead. Pose it again. Okay. So is there an increased risk for a heart attack or stroke or even a clot in the lung pulmonary embolism following COVID vaccine in adults? It's been hard to tease out because we know that COVID itself is associated with an increased risk of clotting. This is 46.5 million adults in France. They're younger than age 75 that were hospitalized for either a stroke, a heart attack, or a pulmonary embolism. And there are over 73,000 of these events. And they ask a simple question. How many of these had the vaccine within three weeks of having that event and comparing it to individuals that did not have vaccination. And they looked, by the way, at four different vaccines, two mRNA vaccines with two doses and two adenovirus vaccines, one with one dose and one with two doses. And what they determined is there was no association at all with the mRNA vaccines and the risk of any of those. However, with the first dose of one of the adenovirus vaccines, the Oxford AstraZeneca, there was a 30% chance of having a heart attack or stroke within the second week after that vaccination. With the other adenovirus vaccine, there was an increased risk as well. This particular article is in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Mm. So really no action point here other than high index of suspicion. Right. If someone's receiving an adenovirus vaccine, it needs to at least be on the forefront of someone that's presenting with chest pain or shortness of breath or neurologic symptoms. Okay. Let's stay in annals of internal medicine. And this is a study that's taking a look at plasma antigens and whether they are important biomarkers in predicting the clinical course for patients who are hospitalized with COVID-19 infection. This is a really enormous study. In fact, pages of authors who are cited. What they did was look at these plasma antigen levels from 2,540 participants who were enrolled in the Tyco, the Therapeutics for Inpatients with COVID-19 platform, from August 2020 to November 2021, with additional data on day five and time to discharge. The participants, all adults hospitalized for acute SARS-CoV-2 infection with 12 days or less of symptoms. And basically what they looked at was this plasma viral antigen level, and that was all measured at a central laboratory. So there was no variation relative to these measurements. They basically found an association between elevated baseline antigen levels, which they drew these when they came in for hospitalization, a thousand nanograms per liter or greater, and outcomes including worsening of pulmonary function and an increasing time to hospital discharge. They found a couple other things. All of this was much more common among men than among women. The severity of their pulmonary illness was associated with this plasma antigen level. The more virus you have in the body or the more antigen, viral antigen, the more likely you were to have pulmonary issues. And I agree with you. There were so many authors on this. This was conducted in 114 hospitals in 10 different countries. I thought they were listening to all the people that got COVID infection. I've never seen that many authors before. And while it's intriguing, there are a couple of things you have to take a step back. Okay, first of all, there's just a single sample drawn. 
It was drawn at the time where the person was actually entered into the study. Mostly individuals that did not get vaccines. And then a large number of these individuals had actually received remdesivir. So they'd already been treated. So I wouldn't put all my money on the bank on this particular one saying, yes, more virus means, in fact, you're worse off you do. Because we know that some of this is actually due to the inflammation associated, not the virus itself but the inflammation that occurs. And that's why anti-inflammatory agents are helpful in those with the most severe disease. But I do think it's intriguing and I think it needs to be followed up with additional studies. Yeah, I'm very interested in this notion of how much viral replication may be taking place in your blood and how that might be impacting on your clinical course. And also, as we've well noted, this biphasic nature of COVID infection and what exactly is happening at different times. And Elizabeth, they've actually measured the viral antigen levels in the lungs because that's the organ that's most severely affected. And there's no correlation between that and pulmonary status. So again, it's an intriguing study, but I think a lot more that needs to be done before we can clearly say, yes, the more virus you have in your body, the worse off you are. And by the way, we need to track that over time. And finally, let us turn to your last one. What's that in? It is in Lancet Neurology. This is individuals that have traumatic brain injury. Are there things that we can use to predict how well they're going to recover? First of all, when someone has traumatic brain injury, we grade it based on what's called the Glasgow Coma Scale, how their eyes respond, what their verbal response is, what their motor response is. And we gave them a score of three to 15 based upon that. Three means you're comatose. 15 means you're actually in pretty good shape. And then we try to predict who's going to recover or who might not recover at all or who might die. There is a score used called the impact score. You actually put these numbers into a calculator. It looks at your age and your motor score, your pupils, and it's somewhat good. But what we've noticed is that when you have brain injury, there are proteins that are released into the blood as some of the neurons die. The two proteins that release from damage in the brain, do they provide additional information over this calculator that we use? And so they took a number of individuals, 2,552, that had traumatic brain injury. They did the usual score with the calculator, and then they measured the protein as well and said, okay, do these one-time measurements provide any information regarding whether someone's going to die, they're going to recover? That's exactly the case. Drawing these one-time blood samples do provide additional insight into mortality within six months. And by the way, most of the patients die within one month. And it also gave insight into whether the person would have an unfavorable outcome or not. They didn't tell you who was going to have complete or incomplete recovery. So it does provide additional information. And by the way, only in the people that are most severely affected. If you have a very mild traumatic brain injuries, a Glasgow score of 13, 14, 15, it didn't really help. I think that this is clearly a useful thing to be able to prognosticate better. What about anything actionable? Well, that's a great question, Elizabeth. If you're going to do studies to say whether something is effective or not, you need to have some predictor of what you think their outcome will be. Otherwise, you've got to have a randomized control trial. But if we can accurately predict what we think their outcome will be, then we can apply therapy to everybody. So it gives them a way to provide studies that might provide beneficial outcomes in smaller numbers of individuals. Let's just review. I mean, this is, of course, an extremely common phenomenon, TBI. It is. We, in fact, I was looking at information from our hospital and say, gosh, where most of our traumatic brain injuries coming from, they often come from motor vehicle accidents or falls, or we're close to a military base. And obviously people suffer traumatic brain injuries after being exposed to IEDs or explosions as well. So traumatic brain injury is fairly common. On that note, then, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. 
and I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.